It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who are super excited about the new COVID-19 vaccine. So that is me, another podcast for me. <laughs> Isn't it weird how all Just these podcasts end up being for you, Nathan? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am like, yeah, I do. I have uh, I have COVID vaccine fever and I haven't even gotten the vaccine yet. <laughs> but I'm bummed. <laughs> My name is Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm uh, Dr. Nathan Boonstra, a pediatrician at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. So a few months ago, when I knew that eventually we would see emergency use authorization for one of the COVID-19 vaccine candidates, I said to Paul Offit, I said, hey, Paul Offit, I'm going to ask you to be on the podcast at the first available moment after that vaccine is approved for emergency use. And he said, okay. And so that's this episode. Here we are. Uh, It's very exciting because he got to take part in uh, all the advisory work for the FDA, which means that he read all of that data. And he's also um, a member of a non-voting member of ACIP. So Again, there's all that data that he got to go through. He spent his weekend dealing with COVID-19 vaccines, and then he took 30 minutes to sit down and talk to us in a really wide-ranging and interesting interview that I think that fans of vaccines in general will enjoy. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was educational for both of us. It's going to be great for everybody to listen to. So you you don't want to hear this intro stuff. You want to hear that. Well, you do. Yeah, We've got you got interesting do. stuff to talk about. We do. We're always interesting. Uh, so don't fast forward. Just go ahead and listen. Do you, <laughs> you have can put an- us on 1.5 right now. That's fine. <laughs> that way we can sound like chipmunks. Mm-hmm. No, you- no. Keeps, 1.5 is great. Keeps your voice. You still get to hear my dulcet tones just faster. <laughs> so do you have an around the web? I do. And it's, you know, basically still focused on... Uh, COVID-19 vaccination. I just want to highlight um, our mutual friend, Tara Haley's article. She is kind of the queen of FAQs when it comes to vaccines. She's done so many fantastic just uh, articles that she tries to apply her, she she succeeds at applying her uh journalistic skills at trying to answer every single question or address every myth on a certain topic. And she's got one now for COVID-19. It's published on medium.com. I don't have an easy link to say, so you have to look at the show notes, but it's called Every COVID-19 Vaccine Question You'll Ever Have Answered. Clear guidance on everything you want to know about the vaccine and then some. Uh, The whatever, you know, computer program tells how long it takes to read this says that it's a 59 minute read so i don't know that you're going to read it top to bottom but you can use control f on it and find the myths the things you've heard about we're going to go over some of those with dr offit here in this episode but it is worth a read uh for pretty much anything that you want to know or to understand about uh these vaccines that are coming out so find it tara haley is spelled 
T-A-R-A-H-A-E-L-L-E. So if you Google that and COVID-19 vaccines, you'll probably find it on Medium. And Terrace does such a wonderful job of breaking things down. Mm -hmm. And I don't want people to be intimidated by the hour-long read because she organizes her Mm -hmm. writing in a way that you really can find what you're looking for if you need to. And I have a number of her past pieces uh, bookmarked. She used to do every year a every question you have about the flu vaccine piece that is extremely yep. useful. So uh, definitely bookmark that medium piece and it is in the show notes. And you can just page down and look at the kind of the bolded headlines of each section so you can find the things that you're interested in why was the vaccine created as quickly as it was there's a safety section it's very easy to use so mm-hmm. take a look and thank right. you tara and you know uh I'll, I'll just say that it's so weird living in a time where people are thinking about vaccines all the time Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and looking <laughs> and looking for pieces like Tara's all the time. Right, we were doing it before it was cool, Karen. I know we were. I mean, it's just so weird because I'm so used to saying to journalists like most people just go and get vaccinated and then never right. think about it again. Instead of most people are spent nine months of their lives being like, "Where's a vaccine? Tell me about vaccines." <laughs> But it's nice to live in a world where people have also become more literate about vaccines so that they can read a piece like Tara's and really hook into it. So my around the web is actually self-referential. It is allowed because it's our podcast, so we can do whatever we want. (laughs) Yay. It's your your podcast. You can do it. That's true. You do. But you are a I follow your rules. Um, So... One of the things I know about misinformation and good information is that people are more likely to believe what they hear from their friends and loved ones. That that is, you know, good looking and dashing as Dr. Anthony Fauci is. People are really more likely to listen to Aunt Berta when she says a friend of a friend said this bad thing happened to her cousin's co-worker's niece. And, and even though I say that and people will kind of scoff at it, for some reason, when it actually happens to you, it does have an emotional hook. It means a little bit more to you than if, you know, even your pediatrician says, oh, you don't need to worry about Aunt Berta's cousin's friend's neighbor's sidekick. Um, and so what that means, though, is that it's important for each of us to be that friend or loved one or coworker or sidekick who is sharing good information. And part of what we want to do is really teach the people around us how to spot misinformation because we're not going to be able to predict with 100% accuracy every piece of misinformation that people are going to come across. But we can teach them sort of what the flavor of misinformation is that you can, you know, that of course there's people who are going to say that a friend of a friend had a bad reaction, but you have to take that with a grain of salt because the person sharing it with you doesn't actually have access to medical records to know what the real deal is. Um, 
and uh, you know, along that strain, I, I want to point out that recently there was a GoFundMe that went viral among anti-vaxxers because a woman said that she was in a clinical trial and then she had what's called a fixed drug eruption. So it's like a giant blister on her foot and it looked terrible. And she had a very well-meaning relative who believed that the vaccine caused this side effect and started to go fund me for her and that and like i said that went viral but as it turned out the woman in question mm -hmm. got the placebo not the actual vaccine so there's no way it was a vaccine side effect and so that's that's sort of how misinformation is spread and being able to use that in as example for people can help them mm -hmm. and to that end this is where it becomes self-referential Voices for Vaccines has made some shareable materials that don't have any branding on them that you can just pluck off the internet or out of our folders that contain this, inf this sh our folders that contain this shareable stuff and share it on your own to sort of get that conversation moving or teach people what misinformation looks like. And the, one of my favorites is I made a cool. COVID-19 vaccine misinformation bingo card. You know, people love bingo cards, but the purpose actually isn't to play bingo, even though I think you could probably win a bingo pretty fast. It's to it's to point out to people like, yeah, this would be misinformation and that would be misinformation and to put it in sort of a graphically pleasing format that people are used to seeing. So, you know, some of the things on there that you might see are Bill Gates or, you know, mm -hmm. boost your immune system or an MLM sales pitch or, you know, a fake doctor sharing something. I also put made of beer in, on it because um, I was getting tired and running out of ideas. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, also because it, it is coronavirus nice. after all. So where do we find this? How do we get to it? <sighs> so, um, the, yeah, so... You know, the easiest place to find all this stuff at once without having to search is to go to the Voices for Vaccines Facebook page and it'll all it'll all be hanging out there. Um, so you can go ahead and grab those. I also want to make a special pitch as long as I'm making pitches to people who are in healthcare or work in long term care facilities um, because you will be the first to receive the vaccine that we really want to take in photos of you getting the vaccine or having just gotten the vaccine uh, to make you to celebrate you and make us all happy for you that you got the vaccines. Um, so if you go to voicesforvaccines.org slash gallery, G-A-L-L-E-R-Y, there's a little button you can press to upload a photo and tell us why you got the vaccine. And uh, I can't wait to start sharing those photos. So please start uploading them as well. Yeah, I think one of the most important things that we can be doing, especially those of us here in the first, uh, in the, in the, that are going to be getting the vaccine sooner, is be public about it, normalize it, help everybody mm -hmm. understand remember even as you alluded to earlier on that we're, we're most effective in advocating to the people that know us and so the mm -hmm. more you can do in your social circles to show that you're excited about this vaccine that you got the vaccine um the the better like that is probably one of the most important things we can be doing to save to save lives right now as advocates absolutely and just to augment that if you're listening to this podcast, you have the power to spread that normalization and that excitement about the vaccine. 
And so please do it. We need all hands on deck right now. Everybody needs to stem the tide of misinformation, teach other people about what misinformation looks like, express enthusiasm, get your, you know, whatever shot you're getting, take a picture of it and send it to us so that we can help you celebrate that. And it's really just an amazing time in history right now. I'm, uh, I kind of feel humbled by being able to be in this moment, even just sort of Mm -hmm. as a peripheral person, you know, just a fangirl of sorts. Uh, (laughs) It's it's an amazing time in history. And I think we all should take a moment to just think about how incredible it is to be alive in this moment. Yeah, there really is a sense of hope, too, right now that I'm feeling just as this year comes to a close. So. Uh, yeah, you know, I hate to make yet another Star Wars reference, but <laughs> the end of Rogue One, after you've seen everything happen and all the awful stuff, and then the plans to the Death Star get passed off to uh, the person who is revealed to be Leia, and they're like, what is it? And she's like, hope. Like, that's kind of the sense that I get <laughs> right now as we talk about that. So um, this is the time when I admit to you that I never saw Rogue One. All right, well, this is the time where I chastise you and say, hang up and go watch Rogue One, Karen. (laughs) Well, first, let's talk to Paul Offit, okay? Okay, let's do that. All right, on the other other side of this uh, break, we'll be talking to Dr. Paul Offit. We're now joined by Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Offit is one of the members of the FDA advisory board that looked at the recent Pfizer vaccine for emergency use authorization. And he is also an ex-officioso member of, I think I said that wrong, of the advisory committee for um, immunization practices. He's a dad who vaccinated his kids and he works at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. That is my abbreviated welcome to you. Welcome, Dr. Offit. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So we wanted to invite you here after the first vaccine received emergency use authorization. And so I'm just going to start with the big question. Why did the FDA authorize the COVID-19 vaccine, the Pfizer one so far, for emergency use? Because um, its benefits clearly outweighed any theoretical risks. Um, Here's a vaccine that was tested in 44,000 people, 22,000 got vaccine, 22,000 got placebo, um, of a two-dose vaccine separated by 21 days, 30 micrograms each dose of this messenger RNA. Um, And then they looked for efficacy up to three months after the receipt of dose one and found that it was 95% effective at preventing disease. It was at least 95% effective at preventing serious disease. It also was about 95% effective at preventing disease in people over 65 years of age. For the most part, I think that they had a reasonable representation of ethnic and racial backgrounds so that their trial looked like America. Um, They did two months of safety data on about uh, 10,000 or so, a little over 10,000 people after dose two, with an understanding that when we've seen serious side effects associated with vaccines, and there are serious side effects associated with vaccines, that when we do see them, they usually occur within six weeks of a dose, which then would enable us to say that we don't have um, any at least relatively uncommon serious side effect in 10,000 plus people, 
which doesn't mean that you don't have a relatively rare serious side effect, uh, which will only found out be found out post-approval, uh, but that's, those data were clear that we should move forward on this. Unfortunately, there were four negative votes and one abstention, because I honestly think that the people who made that vote didn't understand what the, the, the rules were on voting. I think because coming off the dengue vaccine, where there were two votes, there was sort of the first vote and then an option for a second vote, I think they thought there was an option for a second vote that we could uh -huh. say that we approved it only for those over 18. And I think that's why they voted no and then were surprised to find out that there wasn't a second vote, <laughs> okay. um, which is the FDA's fault. I think the mm -hmm. FDA had to make, make it very clear that this is, this is your vote, that there is not a vote after this vote. And I just don't, I think at least enough people were confused that that was a problem. Yeah, no backsies. Going into that, the FDA advisory meeting, did you have particular questions that you wanted answered or concerns that you might have as far as the decisions made or not any in particular? Or how were you, what were you thinking? Um, well, I, I, the, thing, the things that worried me were, one, that there were, there were 162 cases in the placebo group out of 22,000 people, which is a, an, an infection rate of 0.74%. Which is lower than I would have guessed. Uh, you would have expected something like two, two and a half, three percent, but 0.74 percent seemed low. And so my question there was, were we suffering volunteer bias? In other words, that the people who volunteer for the trial were more likely to wear a mask, more likely to social distance, therefore more likely to be exposed to a lower inoculum of virus, and that we were looking at protection against a lower inoculum. Um, that question was answered by Dr. Gruber, Bill Gruber from Pfizer, to say that, that his sense was that was the background rate in the area that they were working in. So we'll see. Um, the other thing I was worried about was the anaphylaxis issue. You know, that you had two, what were two cases, and I think, think maybe three cases of, of severe anaphylaxis in people in the UK that caused the UK that day or the day before, very soon around that meeting, to say that if you've ever had a severe allergic reaction that you shouldn't get this vaccine. And then Monsef Slaoui, who's the head of Warp Speed, said the same thing. Um, I thought that was irresponsible. I, I thought we should wait until you, until you have more data on this before you make that kind of statement. Because, I mean, how many people in the United States carry EpiPens? Mm -hmm. 25 million, 30 million, tens of millions of people. Um, and so I tried to ask that question again of Dr. Gruber, did you was, was that exclusion criteria? In other words, were, were people who have ever had a severe allergic reaction excluded from this trial? And I never quite got the answer. It was just a, it, it, I heard, you know, that the, the instance of allergies was basically the same on both sides, but that really wasn't the question. So I was worried that, that the ACIP in their um, deliberations may come to the same conclusion that Dr. Slowey did in the UK, but they didn't. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they said basically is that if you've ever had a severe allergic reaction to an injectable product, that you wouldn't get this vaccine, but that you've had a severe allergic reaction otherwise, um, then wait for 30 minutes after getting a dose if, you, if, you're, if you're not in any of those groups and just wait for 15 minutes. So that's the right answer because that therefore tens of millions of people aren't excluded from this vaccine. That's interesting. You know, the other thing I've been thinking about is that I know going into Operation Warp Speed, uh, by the way, I have another question about Operation Warp Speed before I ask this main one. According to Al Franken, who is, of course, my main medical advice guru, uh, Operation Warp Speed was named by Baron Trump. Do you know if that's true or not? No, it's not true. What I understand is that mm -hmm. Peter Marks, who was head of Seabird, Centers for Biological Evaluation Research is a big uh, Star Wars fan. Okay. He's the one who came up with Warp Speed. That's I'm going to have to correct that that's a Star Trek reference, lest we get in some major 
that I tags say on social media. So. <laughs> Did I not say Star Trek? What did I, say? I think you said Star Wars, and oh, I will just consider Star it a Trek, simple slip Star of the tongue. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> so when we were going into Operation Warp Speed, I know you were skeptical about the ability to quickly develop a safe vaccine um, through that program. And I'm wondering if your opinion on that has changed and uh, what sort of what's informed your opinion uh, these days about how Operation Warp Speed operated and the speed, speed and safety ratio. Right, no, no. So Operation Warp Speed really is just the manufacturing arm of this particular program. What I was worried about, and, and Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel and I wrote an, an op-ed piece in the New York Times in June, fearing that, that the uh, Trump administration, with the pressure of an upcoming election, sort of dip their hand into Operation Warp Speed, pull out a couple of vaccines and say, I'm, I'm a hero. Here, here's your vaccine without doing phase three trials. As long as phase three trials got completed, I was satisfied. And they did get completed. There, was, there were always sort of these threats, you know, that maybe they're going to do it before it's completed, you know, because it's an emergency. And that fortunately, you know, it, it didn't happen. So I'm completely satisfied. I, you know, the only difference... You know, when you hear emergency use authorization, what do people think of? They think hydroxychloroquine, you know, which mm -hmm. was approved for EUA without ever being shown to work. And now we know not only that it didn't work, but it's unsafe, at least in 10% of people that got it. And, and, you know, same thing with convalescent plasma. If you watch mm -hmm. the, you know, that, that uh, press conference on convalescent plasma, it was just frightening. You know, it's just, um, you know, this is going to be a breakthrough product. Uh, 35 out of every 100 people who get it will have their lives saved. Um, you know, it just was wrong. And, and so... Um, you felt you were being sold something that hadn't been tested. That's not true with these vaccines. I mean, these vaccines have been tested at the same size of any pediatric vaccine. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, HPV was a 30,000 person trial. Mm -hmm. Conjugate pneumococcal vaccine, 35,000. Our vaccine, you know, the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech was about a 70,000 person trial. So, and you know, Johnson Johnson's is going to be a 66,000 or 60,000 person trial. So these, these are typically sized. So if you, if that's true, then why not just submit this as a biologics license application, and get a license if, if there's similar size trials. And the answer is length of study. It's the length of follow-up for efficacy. That's the difference. They, we know that this vaccine is effective for three months after dose one. That's all you know. You don't know mm -hmm. whether it's six months or a year later, but you do know, at least from the, the uh, studies on T helper cells and cytotoxic T cells, that it appears to induce you know, fairly high frequencies of memory cells. That's a very good sign for a disease that has an incubation period of six days, roughly. Mm -hmm. Plenty of time to activate and differentiate memory cells, even if you don't have circulating antibodies. So I, I think that the efficacy durability will be fine. So that's really the only difference. Okay. So I know that in these trials, they can't, they, they don't, they're not necessarily looking at transmission. And that's one of the things that's now going around in memes and whatnot is we don't know that this prevents transmission. My impression is that we don't have any good reason to believe it wouldn't prevent or reduce transmission just based on what it does. But am I misled in that? Or what do you think the, the, the facts are there? Well, so the rotaviruses, which I probably am most familiar with, uh, rotavi natural rotavirus infection protects moderate to severe disease at mm -hmm. re-exposure. It doesn't really pr protect against asymptomatic shedding. Um, mm -hmm. Flu, you can make the same mm -hmm. argument. Mm -hmm. um, this is a mucosal respiratory virus. So you would, could probably make the same argument. If you look, for example, at Pfizer's preclinical data in experimental animals, you know, you can protect against pneumonia, but you really didn't protect against nasopharyngeal shedding. Don't know. I mean, to be studied. And I just came off an NIH active group meeting, you know, the group that was put together by Francis Collins, and which we talked about that for one hour. I got off a few mm -hmm. minutes early because I wanted to be on this meeting on time because Karen Ernst is important to me. Um, <laughs> 
So um, that's all we talked about was doing that trial. So this trial will be done. It's, you know, people will get the vaccine. It's college campuses because it's probably sure. the last place where you can still do placebo mm-hmm. control trials. And, um, you know, and, and there's a lot of close contacts, you know, in dorms, sporting facilities, et cetera. So that they'll do that trial. And then they'll do, you know, a functional test to see whether or not you're protecting against shedding by doing contact, meaning important contagiousness by doing contact tracing. So I think this trial will answer that question. It should start soon. So I'm fascinated now by mRNA vaccines. I'm, I'd love for you to tell us just of our audience a brief primer on how mRNA vaccines work. And also, what do you think the future is with these new kinds of vaccines in terms of are we going to now that this groundwork has been laid be able to get vaccines against other diseases faster? Or is this kind of a unique situation where we can't really expect to see uh, a new onslaught of vaccines against different diseases in the near future? Right. So it's, it's, it's a new technology if you define new as, as a commercial mm-hmm. experience. So there is mm-hmm. no commercially available vaccine using messenger RNA, but the messenger RNA technology to make vaccines is not new. I mean, it's been mm-hmm. you know, ongoing for about 20 years. So people have done already done sort of pre- preclinical work with messenger RNA and HIV, Ebola, uh, tuberculosis, uh, influenza, et cetera. So um, th- there is a sort of large area under the tip of the iceberg that we're seeing now. The messenger RNA is something we all have in our bodies. It's what uh, the, the, your DNA makes messenger RNA that goes, goes to the cytoplasm and codes for a protein. So then that, that messenger RNA goes into the so-called ribosomal system in the cytoplasm, where it's then converted to a protein, in this case, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, which then for the most part gets anchored on the surface of the cell. And the key cell here actually is not the myocyte. It's not the muscle cell. It's dendritic cells. So dendritic cells then take up that, dendritic cells under the skin take up that messenger RNA in, in this little lipid droplet, which enables the RNA one to be, um, to be uh, protected from the sort of RNA aces that are in our body. If you just injected RNA, it would be broken down in a moment. If you put it in a little lipid droplet, it's protected, and plus it makes it easier for the cell to pick it up, in this case, the dendritic cell. So the dendritic cell then makes that protein, puts it on the surface, and then travels to the local lymph node, where it stimulates T cells, B cells, and, and two kinds of T cells, helper T cells and cytotoxic T cells. That's why there was a clear increased incidence of, uh, of unilateral lymph swelling mm-hmm. in the people who got that vaccine. But that's, that's your immune system working for you. So that's not, I wouldn't consider that a side effect. That's an effect. And I feel that way about all the, the sort of, you know, effects of, the, of, mm-hmm. this, of your immune system. And you, when you stimulate your immune system, you make cytokines that do things like cause fever, you know, a headache, muscle ache, joint ache, you know, chills, et cetera. So it's, I just, we, I think that the, your immune system needs a better public relations team, you know, to sort of get out there the fact that this, <laughs> this is just an immunological effect. Um, so, but people need to be aware of it because it is, it's not trivial and it can cause one to miss a day or two of work. It seems to peak at day two. It seems to be more common after dose two than dose one, more mm-hmm. common in people less than 65 than over 65, which tells you something because people mm-hmm. over 65 have immune systems that are not as vigorous as those less than 65. And that's why they have a lower rate of uh, side effect. Not a good thing. It's worth reiterating just to be clear, this does not get taken up in any way that can change your DNA because that's going around and it cannot give you COVID-19 because there is no COVID-19 to be given in the vaccine. That's correct on both just, counts. Just, just SARS-CoV-2 spike protein one. Two is that 
messenger RNA does not enter the nucleus. And, and probably the best example of that is look at DNA vaccines. And so DNA vaccines, like mRNA vaccines, were a single naked molecule, if you will, of DNA. In order to give it, they don't just inject it into the muscle. They actually use an electroporation gun, which hmm. is exactly what it sounds like, electric pore forming gun, where you actually get an electric shock that makes that, that uh, nuclear cell membrane porous and then allows the DNA to enter. It's hard to get uh, that into, into DNA. But I always wonder why it is that people think when your DNA is altered that that means that you're going to like have all these horrible things. Why don't people think it could give you x-ray vision or something? <laughs> you know, it's right? Just a- <laughs> I, I agree. Mean, the only person I ever know who's been bitten or injected with anything and had their DNA altered is Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And what was he bitten by? A radioactive spider. It's right. important to know that just scientifically so we get that right because it's a science-based program. That's Excellent. true. And, the, and just to be clear, the COVID-19 vaccines are not radioactive. Nor delivered by spiders. They're both important points. Thank you. I've, I am getting a lot of questions for people about side effects. And this is mm-hmm. what I, I expected because the side effect rumor mill is very fast and furious when it comes to vaccines. So people are worried about these allergy issues that you were talking about. And so I just want to put a few questions out there. I think you handled this, but I know people have very specific questions. Um, People with migraines are worried that this is going to, the vaccine, uh, you know, a side effect of the vaccine is that they'll have five day long migraines and be incapacitated. People with sulfa um, antibiotic allergies are worried that they can't get the vaccine. People who have bee allergies are worried about that as well because they carry EpiPens. Um, sort of a lot of misinformation floating around there. What, what side effects should people be concerned about? Or I shouldn't say concerned about. What side effects should people be on the lookout for? And what side effects should they kind of tune out? Well, so, so I said, again, they're, they're, because you have sort of this, this uh, inflammatory response associated with uh, the vaccine, you'll have, could have, you know, low-grade fever, headache, chills, uh, muscle aches, joint aches, that, that's all true. Um, but that's it. I mean, that, that's really it. There were four cases of Bell's palsy in the vaccine group, none in the placebo group. And so the anti-vaccine people have now sort of already created memes on that. But the, the, you can be reassured for a few reasons. One is, they're never right. I mean, it is remarkable <laughs> that, that, that uh, if there's anything reassuring about anti-vaccine activists, they're never right. Uh, you know, autism, yeah. diabetes, multiple sclerosis. So when they get, get talking about Bell's palsy, breathe a sigh of relief. It's probably. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you look, it's the problem. This is the problem with, you know, taking small numbers out of large databases. When, you know, we've been through this so many times. There was a publication that claimed that, uh, influenza vaccine given in the first trimester increase your risk of spontaneous abortion. When larger numbers were looked at, that went away. If you looked at Heplosab B, you know, the, that's mm-hmm. the third hepatitis B vaccine that came out. Again, based on small numbers from a large ba- database, um, you know, a handful of patients had uh, uh, myocardial infarctions, heart attacks, as compared to very few who, who didn't. So in the placebo group, so, you know, so therefore that was looked at post licensure and it wasn't problem. But there was also an increased uh, uh, number of prostate cancer cases in the, in the placebo group than in the mm. vaccine group, which is to say the hepatitis B vaccine prevented prostate cancer, which it doesn't do. And this is the problem with small, same thing with our vaccine. The, um, 
there were like uh, nine cases of seizures in the, in the vaccine group, two in the placebo group, which sort of any day, any time up to 42 days after the vaccine and all different kinds of seizures. And that went away when you looked at larger numbers. But what was interesting to me was when we did that study, there were five cases of arm and leg fractures in the placebo group and none of them. So we made a vaccine to prevent arm and leg fractures. Mm -hmm. Did they give Merck a license for that? No. <laughs> because they thought it was a coincidence, because it was a coincidence. And that, that's what I think this Bell's palsy is. Yeah. Um, so I'm one that whenever I've gotten vaccines before, my flu shot every year, um, a year or so ago, I got a Tdap booster and went ahead and got the meningitis vaccines that I'd never gotten before. I don't have any problems. I have a sore arm. I, got, I had a pretty sore arm because of that. Um, but I never have fever. I never feel achy from any shot that I've gotten in my adult life. Um, should I, is, do you feel like the side effect profile, if we want to call it that, is more common or more severe with this vaccine than flu shot or other vaccines? Should I expect that I'm going to feel crummy a little bit, even though I've done okay? You're saying yes. Tell us about I think, that. I think it's more severe. I do. I think it's more like Shangri's. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the vaccine where people often say get it on a Friday, so you don't miss a day of work. Mm -hmm. And I yep. mean, for example, at our hospital, when we, we've talked about this, when we uh, launch this vaccine, which hopefully will be this week, um, we are not going to vaccinate our whole emergency department staff at once. We're yeah. going to stagger it so that we don't, you know, have uh, too much job loss. But I, I think it's not trivial. I think people need, are need, going to need to understand that they may feel real, especially if they're two they, and they're, if they're young, that they mm -hmm. may feel, um, you know, a fair amount of fatigue and headache and, and, and it, it, you know, it's a problem. I, I have a friend actually in North Carolina who um, volunteered for the Pfizer trial. And after the second dose, um, you know, he obviously doesn't know whether he gets vaccine or placebo. But after the second dose, he woke up the next morning, had fatigue, headache, turned to his wife and says, yes, I got <laughs> the vaccine. See, I think that's the right attitude. <laughs> That's I'm, pretty I'm, I'm okay. I got Netflix. I got Disney plus. <laughs> I can relax for a bit. Um, so, uh, so some healthcare workers are first in line. Um, but unfortunately I hear even, you know, amongst people I know hesitancy with healthcare workers to getting this vaccine. What do they in particular frontline workers, healthcare workers, the first sets of people that are going to get this vaccine or that will be offered this vaccine, what do they need to keep in mind when considering uh, whether or not to get this shot? Yeah, no, I think, I think it is reasonable to be a little nervous about this vaccine. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's, a, it's a platform, a messenger RNA platform with which we have no commercial experience. Um, you know that we vaccinated, you know, 22,000 people roughly with Pfizer's vaccine. Um, including pregnant women. I mean, there were, there were um, uh, because this is always true, whenever you do a big clinical trial, even though you ask people not to be pregnant, um, they either they <laughs> were pregnant, didn't know it, or they get pregnant because people have sex. It's just a thing. Um, so there were about two dozen women who were pregnant in this trial. Um, and there didn't seem to be any problem associated with that. But it, it's, it, it is, I think it is reasonable to be concerned about a, new, about a new platform. I do. I mean, I'm, you know, when I get this vaccine, I'll get it hopefully this week, but hopefully soon. Um, I will be a little concerned because, you know, I, I now am having dendritic cells take up messenger RNA, travel to the ipsilateral node, the same size side node, and get, you know, a, a lymphadenopathy. And, you know, it's just, and, I'll have, and I may have fever and headache and joint pain. It's, you know, it's just, that's not fun. Um, doesn't make you want to run back for your second shot, which also sort of worries me a little bit that people would think, well, I got one, I'm probably good. 
Um, but so I think that's reasonable. I think what, 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 I think what people worry about is safety. I, I don't think, I think people pretty much buy the efficacy story. I think they know that if they live through this vaccine that they're going to be protected, likely protected. Um, and so what I think is going to happen is that, you know, that the first, whatever, 20 million people who get vaccinated, which are going to be essentially healthcare workers or people who live and work at uh, long-term care facilities, that's going to give you a big safety portfolio to look at. And then you, you can say, not only is this safe in 20,000 people, it's safe in 20 million people. And it doesn't even seem to cause a rare side effect other than the ones that the anti-vaccine people talk about, which you can breathe a sigh of relief about are not true. And then, you, know, you can move forward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think one of the things we don't know right now is how long does this vaccine work for? We just don't have that long-term data. Uh, And as you've pointed out, this isn't a type of vaccine that we would have any long-term data on for other diseases. Uh, But I'm going to ask you to guess anyhow, if you think that this is a vaccine that will have that sort of lifelong immunity, or if this is a vaccine where we're going to, like a tetanus shot, need a, a booster every decade or so. Right. So I, I don't think it's going to cause lifelong immunity. I mean, measles vaccine can cause lifelong immunity for the same reason that measles natural infection causes lifelong immunity. I mean, you, it's a long incubation period disease. Um, both the vaccine and natural infection induce sort of high frequencies of memory B and T cells. This is a mucosal virus that has a relatively shorter incubation period than diseases like measles, chickenpox, mumps, etc. So I think it will provide, I am going to predict that you should never make any prediction about this virus. <laughs> you're always going to be wrong. <laughs> just like that. Was, well, I was on uh, CNN International with Christian Amanpour in, in March, right? The first, we, like, first death in the United States. I, said, I just can't imagine that this virus is going to cause as many deaths as flu last year, which was 60,000 deaths. You know, because if you're going to be wrong, be wrong on international television in front of 10 <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Don't just tell your friend and then you're wrong. <laughs> Wait, but I lost my train of thought. So I'm sorry, where, where were we? Well, you're not going to make predictions, but what's your prediction? Oh, yeah. So I think that, that um, I, I would, the, the, so there's two reasons in which we could get fading immunity. Um, one is that it would be like, say, whooping cough, where despite the fact that you get like six vaccines by the time you're an adolescent, you still three, three years later immunity mm-hmm. phase. I don't think this is going to be that. I, I think that you'll have short-lived and incomplete protection, meaning that I think that there will be protection for years, but not decades. And I think that it'll be incomplete in that I think you will get protection against mild to moderate severe disease, but maybe not um, so much protection against shedding would be my guess, mm-hmm. which is the rotavirus, really. I mean, that's, right. That's- but that's true with the rotavirus disease, too, that, you know, you that's- can have it as a child, and then when your kids get it, you know, you're not as sick as they are, but you don't feel great. You get milder disease. That's right. And it's not just the smell. Um, <laughs> oh. Okay. So it's going to take a little while. So I am hopeful. I don't know when exactly. I'm not in the top tier of people who get exposed to COVID because I do outpatient pediatrics. Um, but so my colleagues all over the hospital and adult and pediatric world will be uh, ahead of me, but I'm looking forward to my place in line. Hopefully it's soon. I can't predict that. But Karen will probably be a little longer than that um, unless there's something, I don't know, you know, unless there's some reason that you're moved ahead. Awesomeness. Into, uh, more priority. Yeah, unless awesomeness moves you yeah. forward. Um, so 
and there's going to be a lot of people like that. Sounds like this rollout is going to take a while for everybody to have it, for there to be enough vaccine for everybody to be offered it. What does everybody need to be doing in the meantime? Um, and for that matter, what do we do when we're vaccinated? What things do we still have to do? What do we not have to do? What, uh, what, are, what are the next six months look like? Right, so basically we're not helpless here. You, you know, the, the, we can wear a mask and social distance. Those, that's the most powerful thing you can do. Really, if you stand six feet away from somebody, it's extremely unlikely that droplet, that small droplet travels six feet and enters your nose and mouth. If you also wear this sort of, you know, three-ply surgical mask, it's very hard for that droplet then to get through. I mean, you can breathe through the side of the mask. It's not like an N95 respirator, but, you know, you have really dramatically and virtually eliminated your chance of getting that virus. So that, that's what you do. Um, it, is, it is hard here because I think the answer to the question, will there be people who will die over the next, say, four to six months for want of a vaccine? Yes. You know, I just wish we had 300, 400 million doses now to distribute. It's that, I don't know if you remember the, the movie Jaws. Remember the movie Jaws? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So in the movie Jaws, remember the, they're sitting there and they're, they're telling their sort of their war stories. And, and uh, Quint, you know, the Robert Shaw character says, mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was on the USS Indianapolis. We got torpedoed, you know, 300 men into the, went into the water. And then like only 50 were saved because all the rest were eaten by sharks. He said the worst time was when they were in the midst of being saved. He said that's what was the scariest time. Because he knew he was about to be saved, but there were people who were still, you know, mm-hmm. succumbing to the shark because they hadn't been saved yet. But that's where we are now. Yeah. It has felt like Jaws this whole time, too. Mm. Um, One last question, and then, you know, we'll let you go to Francis Collins or someone else less important than us. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I'm wondering, there's obviously this is not the last COVID-19 vaccine that's going to come up for emergency use authorization. I'm wondering if you see anything more promising or equally as promising coming down the pike that you're excited about as far as vaccines? So, so Moderna's will, mRNA vaccine will likely be approved on Thursday. So now you have two mRNA vaccines. The Johnson Johnson has been very quiet. You know, they have a replication defective ad 26 for which we do have commercial experience. I mean, that, that was the vaccine that was used for, uh, to prevent uh, Ebola in West mm-hmm. Africa. So we have, we have a lot of, and it's a single dose vaccine, not a, a two dose vaccine. And Johnson Johnson's veteran, uh, pharmaceutical company. So that, that I, 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 they, they, unlike the fact that we're living in this time of, you know, science by press release, you don't see much from them. So I, I don't know where, where things stand, but supposedly everybody says that they would have their 150 cases at least by end of January, beginning of February, and maybe sooner. And so we'll see. Um, AstraZeneca has done a lot of tripping and falling. Uh, you know, the, um, mm-hmm. the, their phase three trial has involved different doses and different dosing intervals, which is something that should have worked out in phase one. So they need to sort of get their act together. Um, the China vaccine, which is a, um, uh, a, a whole killed viral vaccine, mm-hmm. um, it's supposed to have efficacy in the 80% range. But again, science by press release, they've given it to hundreds of thousands of people. It certainly would be a safe vaccine. It's a vaccine, again, with which we have a lot of commercial experience, you know, with hepatitis A or rabies or an activated polio vaccine. So um, I'd really be curious to see that. If, I, if Actually, if I had to guess what would have been the first vaccine, it would have been my, my guess would have been the, the China inactivated vaccine. But mm-hmm. so we'll see. Um, the Russia vaccine with sort of replication defective ad five followed by replication defective ad 26. I don't see that. I don't see us using replication defective ad five in this country, frankly, because of what was an untoward experience with Merck and their HIV vaccine, mm. where that vector actually increased your risk of, of HIV. 
So I don't see that one coming. But um, just to clarify, and, that's the adna, that's a particular strain of adenovirus that um, causes a increased risk of HIV um, it, it, in the past. Right. Increase your, your your frequency of uh, T helper cells that bore CCR5 on the surface. But if you've been previously exposed to Ad5, which is a fairly common human serotype, and then the other ones would be. Um, the sort of Sanofi slash GSK uh, purified protein vaccine, same for Novavax. Those two, if you, if you answer the question, what vaccine gives you the highest titer of neutralizing antibodies, it's the Novavax hmm. uh, purified protein vaccine, which uses a, 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 an adjuvant similar to one that's used in Shingrix. Hmm. But again, it's, you know, it's a small company. Um, they have ways to go, I think, to get do the big trial. Right. Well, that might be what I end up getting because I'm so far down the <laughs> list. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining us today. It's always great talking to you and seeing you. We're doing this via Zoom for those who are listening. Thank you. That was fun. And thank you to all of you who have joined us today for listening. Again, our call to action is go out, stop misinformation, and spread enthusiasm. We're so excited to be here with you in this moment. My name is Karen Ernst, and I'm the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at VoicesForVaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Booster, General Pediatrician at Blankman's Hospital in Des Moines. You can find me on Twitter at PedsGeekMD, or look for me on Facebook or my blog, PedsGeekMD.com.